This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you all for joining us for what uh, I think for many people, it's the evening time. I know for the people on the East Coast, it's been a particularly long day. So we really appreciate you spending the evening with us. Um, thank you all also to the people who are watching this in the future. Uh, after this has been recorded, we, we thank you for watching, too. Um, I want to start by saying that we're really excited to be having this conversation, to um, to be exploring the possibilities of an abolitionist social work, to, to explore it together publicly, and to think about the tensions and paradoxes mm -hmm. and what this work can look like and does look like in practice. I think most folks listening are aware that there's a much larger uh, abolition movement afoot, and that's been growing for decades, but it's particularly um, grown a lot in the last year. And so just this week, there's been, I don't know, I think four different conversations related to the conversation we're having tonight. Mariam Kaba's book, Until We Free Us, was released. The lovely Haymarket Books uh, hosted the conversation on Tuesday night. Yesterday, Sophia Sarantakos and some other folks in Denver hosted a conversation about journeys to abolition, largely made up of social work-oriented folks. Um, just today, Ruth Wilson Gilmore gave a lecture. Justin Hardy, who's a PhD student, talk about black contributions to social work and social welfare. So I say all this to say that this conversation we're having right now is happening in the context of many conversations and a lot of work, also in the midst of a lot of suffering. And there's a lot of suffering happening and there's a lot of movement building around it. And we're um, grateful to, to have this conversation be a part of that larger context. Um, so before we get into it, I wanna give a big shout out to Haymarket Books. Um, I've been telling the folks at Haymarket Books that if there was a Yelp for movement partners, they would be getting like five stars. Uh, Dana and John, you've been really, really lovely. Jordan is holding down the um, live captioning, so thank you. Um, a shout out to the Network to Advance Abolitionist Social Work, um, which has been central to organizing tonight's event. We're going to share more information about the group uh, in an email, and maybe that'll come up in the chat. Um, so uh, let's get into it. We are joined by three folks that I'm, I'm grateful to call co-conspirators, to call teachers, and to call friends. I'm going to briefly introduce each of them, um, and then they'll share a bit more about themselves as we get the conversation going. So uh, first, we have Wakumi Douglas, who is the co-founder and director of Soul Sisters Leadership Collective based in Miami, Florida. So Wakumi has had a particularly long day, so we so appreciate Wakumi being here. Um, she's the daughter of an undocumented immigrant serving a 30 to life sentence, and she's spent most of her life building the leadership of young folks impacted by incarceration and impressive system, oppressive systems more broadly. She's a healer. Um, she's someone who's done work around restorative and transformative justice, and she is an organizer in her being. And I can say that she is one of the first people who taught me about organizing, and I owe a lot to her. Um, next, we have Kirk J. James, who we affectionately call Jay. Uh, Jay is a clinical assistant professor at NYU School of Social Work. He also leads Evolving Justice at NYU. He's a writer, a scholar, a facilitator. Uh, at least some of his work is focused on critical pedagogy, on healing practices, and writing about trauma, the history of the carceral state, and abolition. And I can say that Jay has been 
one of my first teachers who sort of made it clear that the work of justice starts with yourself. So I'm, I'm really grateful for Jay. And last but not least, we have Mimi Kim, who is an assistant professor of social work at California State University, Long Beach. She's the founder of Creative Interventions and the co-editor uh, in chief of Affilia, which is a critical feminist social work journal. She's a longtime anti-violence activist and organizer, transformative justice and community accountability thinker and practitioner, and has authored a lot of pieces, including the infamous 600 page toolkit, that has become an inside joke among folks interested in working around transformative justice. Um, Mimi has been uh, a teacher to me in many ways, but most importantly, I think for this conversation is that she was one of the first people who showed me the connections between social work and the carceral state. Um, so thank you all for being here. Um, to give you all some sense of, of what to expect, we're gonna have this conversation in a few different chunks. First, we're gonna have folks talk about their, sort of how they come to social work and abolition. Then we're gonna look at the possibilities that an abolitionist social work might provide. Um, and, and also understand something about how we got to this moment where we're even having this conversation framed in this way. Um, we're gonna look at the paradoxes and tensions that come up when we think about this and think about building this kind of thing. Um, and then we're gonna look at what this looks like in practice. And then finally, we'll have about 20 minutes for Q&A. So this is our plan. We'll see where the conversation takes us. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, the first question we're going to do around here is how do you come to social work and how do you come to abolition? And Jay has graciously volunteered to to be the first to speak. So Jay, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, thank you, Cam. You know, I, I just want to echo what you said. You know, thank you, Haymarket, for allowing me an opportunity on Thursday night to take a shower and put on some clothes to and come to a dope conversation. Uh, thank you, Mimi. Thank you, Wakumi. Um, and, you know, just really to your point, Cam, just really thank you and honor and all the people that are joining in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of immense racial and social, you know, unrest. You know, thank you, everyone, for coming to be a part of what I believe to be a very important conversation. So for me, Cam, I didn't, you know, come to social work. I feel that for me, this work almost uh, left me no choice. I was born in Jamaica. I was born, you know, amidst uh, political and social unrest, what Wakumi speaks to when she speaks about her father's experience. And as a result, in 1986, my family migrated to the United States in search of a better life. What we found was racism. What we found was uh, different types of uh, injustice. And ultimately, in 1993, I would be able to, you know, persevere immense, irrespite it, it, it my experiences in America. And in 1994, I was arrested. I was 18 years old, and I was charged under a myriad of offenses. And predominantly, I was charged under the Rockefeller drug laws, which mandated a life sentence for someone convicted of as little as two to four ounces of cocaine. And at 18 years old, for a series of conspiracy charges, uh, without any other record, I would be sentenced to life in prison. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was, you know, um, my first experience with the justice system and as someone who was a college student, someone who actually wanted to be an attorney, I was really shocked to what happened to me. Yet, it wasn't just happening to me. Uh, much of the music of my generation, much of the music of the 90s was actually speaking to the phenomenon 
what we would ultimately dub mass incarceration. Uh, you know, we listen to you and I, Cam, joke about this all the time. When we listen to um, Nas and Lauren Hill, If I Rule the World, that's an abolitionist song, right? I'll free all my sons and send them back to Africa. Um, so for me, this work is deeply personal. It's rooted in my experiences. Um, and when I came to social work, I came to be a part of the resistance. And the reason why I thought social work was part of the resistance was because of its values and the ethics that it put forward. And even though it wasn't actualized in them, I'm still very fortunate to be in spaces with people who are committed to seeing the actualization of abolition and justice within social work. Thank you, Jay. Thank you for that. I'm going to turn to Mimi, if that's okay. Sure. Um, well, everybody, uh, thank you for joining us tonight for this really important conversation. Um, I think that I came to social work later in my life. Um, I worked in the anti-violence movement since really the, the late 80s. Um, I came into it as somebody who saw it as a movement, working um, uh, as a feminist, um, and, you know, not always comfortable using that term because of its association with white feminism, but um, really kind of getting comfortable with that now that I see that we have really developed a radical um, people of color feminism. Um, I, I came into to working in domestic violence and um, sexual violence services as a movement person. And um, I saw those sectors um, change and evolve over time. Um, I saw, uh, I have to say when I entered, um, the kind of relationship with the carceral system was pretty much a done deal. Um, it was something that we did not feel comfortable with, but maybe something that we took as a given. Um, for a lot of the, the time that I was working in, whether it was a rape victim services program that I worked in in Chicago, whether it was at Asian Women's Shelter in San Francisco, where I worked for 10 years, whether it was in the different programs that I've started over time. Um, what I came to find is uh, as we were, for example, starting a program in, in the Korean community, um, that we were adopting a white feminist model. And so I, I came into, um, you know, I, for most of the people I know who are doing that work and I still do that work and I still know people, we don't actually identify as social workers. I, I understand mm -hmm. there are social workers that do that kind of work. And if we're going to look in any kind of like a uh, field or discipline, certainly social work is the best match. But, um, I, like I said, I came to social work as a discipline later in my life. And I have had an ambivalent relationship with social work, I think, um, as we did when I worked in social work, as we have as communities of color. Um, and I think some of that is what I've been grappling with and what we are grappling with as we look at these, putting these terms together, abolition and uh, social work, what does that mean? So we'll have a chance to talk about that more um, this evening. Thank you, Mimi. Really appreciate that. My, the ambivalence, I think, is is present for so many of us. So I'm going to pass it to Wakumi. Awesome. Um, wonderful to be here. Uh, again, for folks, I'm Wakumi. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm joining you from 
Tequesta, Miccosukee, Seminole lands in South Florida, what we call South Florida now. Um, and my journey to social work to me starts with ancestors. It starts with the Africans who were trafficked to the Western hemisphere um, and chose to resist um, and were not enslaved and chose to fight their captors in two wars in one and set up their own you know, self-determined communities during the time of enslavement. And that is um, a part of my ancestry on my father's side. On my mother's side, I come from a people who were church people, who visited the sick and shut in, who farmed and used herbs for healing and supported people in getting what they need. And so my relationship to social work is not about degrees or school or licenses and whatnot, although I understand the purpose and role of those things in some ways. My relationship to social work is about resistance and healing and um, social change and undoing the legacy of oppression that is still gripping our people. Um, as Cameron mentioned, actually, my dad got out. I don't know if I told you guys that. My dad is out. Yeah, he's in Jamaica. He's free. Um, and so um, I grew up doing time on the outside with him and did 33 years on the outside with him, did past tense, which feels really great to say. Um, and um, had a strong desire uh, in my spirit as a young woman who was herself arrested, is herself a victim, survivor of violence, um, to support young people in their freedom um, and thought that the way to do that was through organizing. And so was a part of a number of different black left organizing formations, radical black nationalist formations. Um, and in that organizing work found that our people are in a deep need for healing and wanted to learn more about supporting our people, not only in shifting conditions, but also in healing the ways those conditions harm us internally. And so I went to social work school, actually, on the advice of my mom. Um, I wasn't actually looking to be a social worker, kind of like Jay. Um, and while in social work school, I did an independent study in African-centered healing and social work and was very focused on the criminal legal system and, and advocacy to uh, undo it um, and turn it inside out. And really was excited to discover the Black social work tradition. So anybody who's listening who isn't aware of the Black social work tradition, I want to point you to the book um, by Patricia Reed Merritt, all about uh, uh, black the Black social work movement and undoing this idea of um, educationalizing social work in a way that excludes our people who we know are grannies and aunties and, and candy ladies and all these folks who are supporting our people and our, our young people in the streets. Um, and so, yeah, excited to continue the conversation. Thank you, Wakumi. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you, Jay. I, mean, I think there's a lot to pull out of that. And I think that it, it sets the foundation for our conversation going forward, <laughs> where each of you are coming from. Um, I'm going to turn to this, this part of our conversation around the possibilities of an abolitionist social work, but I want to start by sort of looking at how we got to this moment. Um, and Mimi, if I can start with you uh, to sort of give us a bit of a broader history of how we might have arrived at this moment where we're having a conversation about abolitionist social work. Um, 
I mean, any history that one of us could give is a partial history, but um, I'm going to go back um, and um, from my perspective and my entry points into movement work and movement work that has now really kind of claimed and embraced uh, the term abolition, um, I, a couple important moments come to mind. One is 1998 and the founding conference for um, critical resistance, critical resistance being a social movement organization that still exists today that is very much strongly um, centered in um, abolition and was from that the time of its founding, um, Angela Davis being one of the founders, um, uh, a friend and colleague, Rachel Herzing being one of the co-founders, and many, many other people. It was one of those phenomenal times when, um, you know, you just never forget that moment when people came together and not, not that people hadn't already been doing that and hadn't already been formulating the abolitionist critique of the criminal legal system or the prison industrial complex, but really prison industrial complexes hadn't been named until uh, just a couple of years prior to that by Angela Davis. So that was a real uh, movement moment for me. Um, many people who then later on became part of what we now call insight women and transgender people of color against violence. Um, it's an organization that start, started in 2000, so that was two years later. And really, there was kind of this momentum at the time. Now, why at that time? I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But certainly, there was an energy and there was um, a, a moment for real radical change. Um, in 2000, some of us uh, who identified as feminists of color who were Many of us who had been working for a while in a domestic violence, sexual, sexual assault organization had come together and we had had conversations for quite a while on being very, very critical of, for example, the Violence Against Women Act in 1994 that had been part of the crime bill. Um, there were so few people that talked about that within our movement. And, and yet that was such a clear um, uh, symbol and um, kind of brought together material forces that really placed the feminist anti-violence movement within the most oppressive, carceral, masculinist um, sphere of the state. And the contradictions of that were just immense. And the fact that people were not talking about that was uh, not lost to us at all. So I think um, we had a small gathering at the time what we thought was going to be a small gathering, um, several of us who are co-founders. And we found uh, 2,000 people, um, primarily people of color, said, no, you know what? I want to come to that too. And so this was another kind of movement moment, I think, where we saw that there was a need and there was a hunger for a new framework for looking at, in this case, I think, for looking at feminism, for looking at violence, not only the kind of interpersonal violence that we were experiencing or the, the society level of violence, but the violence of the state and putting that front and center and intersecting that with the violence um, that we experience in the home and relationships in our personal lives. And really, really trying to understand the ways in which that um, one uh, had dynamics that interplayed with the other. Um, we looked at histories of, uh, of militarism, and I have to say, as somebody who also comes from Korea and is the product of um, my father's a political refugee from Korea, 
Um, my mother's, in some many ways, a refugee from the domestic violence, uh, a home of, filled with violence. Um, but as within a context in which U.S. imperialism um, had really one out of three people were murdered in North Korea, and that's what um, my people were feeling as well. So that um, that this, these are the kinds of histories that we're often asked to remove ourselves from, especially if we come to the United States, the land of forgetting, the land of just thinking you came for a better life, not thinking about what, why was your life uh, so terrible um, in our home countries. And I think these are all things that various people coming together um, as people of color um, at the Insight Conference and at the following kind of many, many activities and waves of activities we had after that, were um, seeking um, common visions across very, very different and diverse communities and people, but really trying to make that, um, draw that line that at that time, I think we were maybe called anti-carceral and I think increasingly started naming as um, abolitionist. So again, I know many people in that movement don't quite consider themselves social workers, and yet I think that um, what I bring to social work and uh, the, the idea of abolition social work is the um, lived experience I've had of violence in um, my communities, but also the violence that I saw perpetrated through the ways in which uh, carceral feminism was constructed in this country. Mimi, thank you so much. I mean, there's 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 a lot in what you just said, and I just want to pull out one thing, um, well, a couple things really, but the, the land of forgetting, I think, is stands out to me. And I think something that you've done in your work and other folks have built on or built around or built at the same time is this idea of carceral social work, which is looking both back at the history of social work and how it's been carceral or connected to the carceral state and trying to understand how that is happening now. Um, and so I, I, I say that I think that that has been helped part of what has allowed this idea of an abolitionist social work to become more possible. I'm curious if Jay or Mimi, uh, Jay or Wakumi have anything to add there. I also want to sort of say the last year has been momentous in sort of movement building and resisting and social work has become uh, more on the lips of a lot of people for different reasons. So I'm, I'm curious about the history of the last year. But Wakumi or Jay, is there anything you want to add about how we arrived at this moment? Wakumi, if you want to go first. Oh, no, Jay, please. I yield my time to you. <laughs> thank you. So I, I think one of the things, Cam, um, and thank you, Mimi, I, I feel that oftentimes, you know, I think Wakumi kind of acknowledged that is that we don't go far back enough. Right. And I think when we talk about abolition, I feel one of the things as Cam, as a Ph.D. student, I remember my research professor constantly telling me, you have to operationalize your variable. You have to operationalize your variable. And I feel we have this conversation around abolition a lot, and we don't really give it context. We kind of think that everyone knows what abolition is or it means. And, and even, you know, the lack of acknowledgement that is still like often an ongoing process, right? It's an ongoing um, action. And so for me, when I think about abolition, you know, abolition has deep history, but in terms of the word abolition, I, I like to think of, you know, the early 
the early uh, 1800s in America. And, and think of Frederick Douglass, who said that, you know, abolition isn't only the end of slavery, but it's a transformation of society. I like to think of, um, you know, abolition as a movement that was very much connected with the women's rights movement, right? And so for me, when I think about abolition, I don't think about it just as, um, you know, a closing of jails and prisons. I think about it as a radical rethinking of what it means to be in society together. And, and I feel that if we don't really acknowledge that this is, you know, from the time there has been injustice in America, people have been working to correct that. From the time there has been injustice anywhere in the world, people have been working to correct that. So I, I feel that, you know, abolition, if we define abolition as a transformation of society, it allows people, as Frederick Douglass said, it allows people a greater opportunity to come into the conversation. Um, because I think, you know, we, of course, like this man on jails and prisons are part of it. But I think it's important that we not forget that there is a deep history, especially in the United States, of abolition. And, and much of indigenous work on indigenous places throughout the world of abolition. And I think it's important for us to kind of connect those things as well as, you know, the, the things, the contemporary mechanisms that are pushing us closer to um, actualizing our values. Thank you, Jay. That, and that's actually a really great segue to the next piece of our conversation, which is about like, what does the idea or the notion uh, of an abolitionist social work, like what possibilities does it provide for us? And I, I, I want to frame that question in like Miriam Kaba's work has around PIC abolition has helped me at least, and I think many others to to name the horizon of the world that we're trying to build and to like keep that center central while we sort of navigate the realities of today. And so I think um, part of the possibilities in an abolitionist social work to me is about naming the social work that we aspire to, even if we have mixed ideas and disagreements about what that social work might be. So I'm curious for any of you, sort of what is the abolitionist or what is the social work that we aspire to and or what is abolitionist social work allow us to think about in terms of the horizon we're working towards? I can I can speak to I can start um, this go around since Jay and Mimi have been so generous so far. Um, I think the thing that social workers need to be thinking about is the question that we need to be asking ourselves is in what way am I undoing punitive models of being with folks? And in what way am I promoting, supporting, and propping up punitive models of being with folks? Folks who are listening and watching this today are social workers in schools, right? When a young person has broken a rule, in what way are you as a social worker advocating to reduce the harm of the school's typical punitive response. That to me is what abolitionist social work is looking like. It's asking social workers to be incredibly, incredibly critical of how we're undoing punitive models at every level of our being. So that starts with self internally in what ways am I more inclined to slap someone on the wrist than to ask them what they need and what happened and how did we arrive here? Um, and that's that's the internal work. 
there's work that social workers need to do interpersonally in our families with our colleagues. And then there's work that we need to do at a structural level. And so to me, it's about undoing punitive models. Um, I would just add, uh, I want to share this this uh, tool that comes out of the restorative justice field and movement that I find to be really useful when I'm beginning to think about how to undo that punitive thinking that lives inside of us because we were conditioned in a society that slaps on the wrist first. Restorative justice is asking different questions in a punitive retributive system, right? So a punitive criminal legal, school discipline, or other kind of system is asking the questions, what's the law and rule that was broken? Who broke it? And how should they be punished? And where we need to move, um, and what restorative justice at least, which is one abolitionist tool of many, is asking us to move into, is thinking about who has been harmed, what do they need, and what are all the myriad of obligations around meeting the present needs? And so I think for me, an abolitionist social work is asking folks to critically engage with shifting the paradigm from, from a punitive model to a restorative, transformative, revolutionary, radical, whatever word we want to call it, um, one. Thank you, Wakumi. And I think one thing that comes to mind when I'm listening to you is that I remember when I first came to restorative justice, for example, I was like blown away intellectually, but moving in that to be an internal belief and embodied sort of way of moving in the world has taken a long time and is still a journey. So it's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with starting at an intellectual place, but the, the journey of embodying a non-punitive impulse is, is work. I mean, I think that's what abolition is actually calling us to do and it's difficult work. Um, so Mimi or Jay, you want to chime in on, on what the abolitionist social work, what possibilities it provides? Jamie, do you want to go? I... Uh, you could go, Mimi, if you want. I could go. It doesn't matter. Okay, we're being very polite here. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could jump in. And if, if you would prefer, I could jump in. Um, one of the things I think, Cam, is, uh, first of all, it's it's really, again, it's the actualization of our values, right? Social work movement towards abolition. If we see abolition as a transformation of society, then it's really the actualization of our values. Um, while Kumi said something, you know, a lot of things really powerful and important. Uh, one of the things, though, she said that I feel really resonates with me right now is this idea of, like, decolonizing challenging our ways of knowing, our ways of being, and our ways of acting, especially if we understand that so much of that has been born through white supremacy, that has been born through patriarchy, that has been born through capitalism. And I think something else also inherent in you know an abolitionist social work, and it's something that we don't talk about. A lot of our history, we talked about, you know, when I remember in social work history, we talk about this idea of deserving and undeserving. Well, something inherent in this conversation is the idea that people are inherently good or bad. And I feel if we are to really become, you know, if we're really to honor our values and our ethics, if we're really to honor abolition, we really have to move beyond that antiquated belief. And, and that belief is really a byproduct of capitalism, which creates this very lazy analysis 
Um, I think one of the things that's really powerful for me, and I just want to quote old Bob Marley at, to honor just again, the legacy of uh, this work. And if we're constantly seeing people as discardable, if we're seeing people as good or bad, we're, we ourselves are going to continue to play into the role of oppressor and oppressed. And Bob Marley says until, and, and this is actually a really powerful speech that was written and delivered to the League of Nations um, by uh, the Egyptian, the Ethiopian emperor at the time. And he says, until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned, everywhere is war until there is no longer first-class and second-class citizens of any nation, until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes, there is war, and until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regards to race, there is war. So if we as social workers are going to honor a world in which we can create equity and humanity for all, it has to start now. It has to start with this acknowledgement that we can't make people discarded irrespective of what they do. And maybe the other point I would say with this too is like the neoconservative paradigm has really shifted the idea that, you know, social determinants of behavior to individualistic models. So no one ever stops to think about like, how is this society, how is poverty, racism, structural oppression, um, you know, economic uh, insecurity, how is this creating actions that are harmful to a community? We instead look at the people who are often subjected to legacies and histories of repression um, and not see, again, their plight. So I feel, you know, the piece around decolonization, the piece around really challenging the lens in which we even view the world, I think is integral to social work moving towards actualizing its values, whether we call it social work abolition or not. Thank you, Jay. Mimi, did you want to add on there? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I think that's a, a challenging question right now, at least for me in 2021. Um, um, I really, really thank um, Wakumi and Jay for really bringing us uh, historically back much further than I had um, when I introduced um, my, my own introduction to abolition. Um, and yet, I, I think putting the words abolition and social work together, even though we might have had two or three conferences or webinars like that in the last couple of weeks, there weren't, you know, think of it before June. Did, did I see those two words put together? I, I don't think I had. Um, I, you know, I was, I definitely was engaging with abolition, but not through social work or my understanding of social work. So I think that um, uh, having this, you know, this uh, webinar today, the, the ones that are going to happen in the future, the ones that are starting to happen, um, gives us a really big opportunity to, to look at two words that I think do not closely go together at this moment. They, in fact, when I think of that, I, I was a little bit nervous, honestly, about doing this webinar because I am not used to putting those words together. I think of social work as having a history that is so embedded in one um, improving, but uh, you know, ameliorating the excesses of capitalism, so that we can keep capitalism. I mean, people I think have that understanding of social work pretty deeply. Um, social work as not questioning at all its relationship with the police, um, thinking that 
it's, you know, this is a beneficial relationship or one that can kind of sweeten or soften the, the excesses, if you want to say it, of policing um, and still say this, you know, to this day. Um, so I think that, uh, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to think deeply of also the, the potential of the, the history of organizing social work is somewhere and you know what Kumi is we're talking about organizing is something that you didn't probably learn out of a book that you just did right these are things that we have just done I think as people are talking about kind of re-examining the words mutual aid um, that these are things that are also deep in the history of social work but they are things that have been devalued over time, they've been professionalized and made into some kind of, somebody just said social entrepreneurship is now considered organizing, which I didn't even realize. Um, I knew it was something that was less and less being considered, but, um, and I do want to give a shout out to uh, Cal State Long Beach where I teach because I, it is still, um, there's still a tradition of considering that a very important part of what we teach. Um, but that, that's not in that many schools of social work. So if we can look at that and we look at some of the organizing traditions of people that not, didn't necessarily consider themselves social workers, if you think about the Black Panthers that were bringing in, um, you know, uh, breakfast programs and also doing political education, political action, that um, if we look at um, some of the work, uh, I'm just going to give a shout out to one of my favorite people and organizations, which is Kajwa Avaj at um, Freedom Inc., which is in Madison, Wisconsin, and has an amazing Hmong Cambodian um, Black program that was deeply steeped in organizing, but also in providing for the material needs of their people. Then um, what we see in common there is that we see organizing that is done by the people most impacted. It is organizing by people from the community. It is not in the Alinsky tradition of somebody else coming in from the outside, um, that uh, it's organizing that that brings material needs, uh, that fills, meets material needs, a kind of a horizon of doing political, radical political change work. And these are things that we should also be teaching in our social programs. Some of you probably are. Some of us are not. I think what these kinds of conversations are bringing in now and, and also a deeper look at the uh, history and actually the recognition, even saying the histories of white supremacy within social work, things that people are starting to say much more commonly now than they did before, that we do have an opportunity. But right now I see there's a gap and it's a gap to be filled. And I'm excited about that and having this conversation right now. And being asked that question, I think just also forces me to not to despairing, but to actually look at this as a great opportunity for us to do really important work. Thank you so much, Mimi and Wakumi and Jay. I think one thing that stands out for me from each of your your shares is that like there are histories of solidarity in social work, but they've been at the margins and for under, like for reasons that we can explain based on oppression and white supremacy and patriarchy and all of these things and capitalism. Um, and so one of the things I think abolitionist social work potentially allows is and actually demands if we're going to really try and work towards this is a social work rooted in solidarity. 
and based on the needs of people, which may eventually mean social work doesn't exist. It may not. We don't. I, that's a, that's another conversation, which maybe we'll loop into in a bit. Um, and Mimi, I appreciate that you're these words coming together brings up contradictions and tensions, which is going to put us towards our next set of, of conversation. Um, and maybe I'll say one thing about, you know, in the last year, there's been a lot of discourse about social workers and being part of uh, um, work of defunding the police is to replace police with social workers. And many of us have pushed back on that notion on a variety of fronts. And I think those kinds of things provide a much clearer way to say this is not what social work is about. And social work is so deeply embedded in in so many parts of the carceral state that it does. There are parts of this that get more difficult to discern how to move towards the sort of demands of solidarity. So I, I guess I want to ask each of you to to talk about where are the paradoxes and tensions coming up in your own work. Um, and I will start with Jay, if that's all right. <laughs> where, where are the paradoxes and tensions coming up in my own work? Um, well, I, I mean, for one, I think that, you know, we're, we're working in a system that is often legitimize our oppression. Um, you know, the, the, the educational system continues to, you know, use really nice words to talk about something that we should all be really disgusted with. And, and I feel always conflicted by my role in that space. I feel always conflicted by the tension inherent in the legacy of this space. Um, you know, I, I think we're, we're talking about abolition, but even in the conversation about abolition, like, what do we, what are we talking about, you know? And, and really what we're talking about is hundreds of years of injustice, not only racial injustice, but, you know, injustice on, on every level. We have devalued human beings, and yet we continue to show up and have conversations about that. Yet we continue to show up and, you know, in many ways, um, academize human life and human dignity. So I, I think for me, I'm always sitting with the tension of, you know, the fact that I'm having a conversation about somebody's lived experience, that people are dying right now as a result of our collective inactivity. Um, so that tension is always really real for me. One of the things I want to say, um, too, is I, I feel, you know, even the, the, the thing about this work that sometimes creates a lot of tension for me is that we often, you know, don't speak the truth because we're trying to make people comfortable in these conversations. And oftentimes, you know, we talk about, you know, when people talk about, you know, I'm scared of abolition. Um, why? Because I'm worried about my safety or something to that sense. I'm like, who, whose safety? Whose safety are you worried about? You know, because where was the police during slavery? Where was the police during colonialization? Where has been the police during centuries of racism and perpetual economic and social insecurity? So I want to have these conversations in ways, the tension that I struggle with, Cam, is that we don't have this conversation in ways that feel like really authentic. You know, that, you know, right now, as we have this conversation, there are people dying in jails, in prisons. This is an international conversation. We can't think what hap is happening in America is only happening in America. Um, you know, being born in the Caribbean, I know that political actions instigated in the United States impacted millions of people on the island that I was born in and still impacts them. I know that, you know, the, leg the legacy of colonialization still impacts a continent and millions of people in the diaspora. 
So I, I just feel like the tension that I often sit with is that, you know, we, we bullshit with this conversation, to be really honest with you. We don't really talk, uh, you know, in, in a way that I feel really honors the history of this. We've never, there, there is no other legacy of oppression on this level, and yet we're still inactive, you know, and I think that's the tension Mimi was talking about. You know, we're still inactive. Why are we still talking about this? And, you know, we're, we're going to leave here tonight, like, as Mimi said, you know, and it's like, maybe some people will, you know, think about this more critically, and others will probably continue with the dissonance. So I think for me, again, you know, maybe this was a long winded, but I, I definitely feel the tension for me is that, you know, we just don't, radical means going to the root. If we're going to change something, we have to sit with tension, we have to have this conversation in ways that feel really honest, that really, that feel really authentic of what it is that we're speaking about. Thank you, Jay. Wakumi, I'm going to turn to you. Yeah, um, it's so awesome to get to listen. I hope everyone who is 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 watching like understands the privilege of being able to sort of sit at the feet of Mimi and Jay as they like really push us to think about where these really critical tensions are in our field. Um, I mean, I think one that feels kind of obvious uh, as a tension is that social workers make their livelihood off of systemic injustice and systemic oppression. Um, so that's a that's a tension, that's an issue. Um, and social workers need to be developing a mindset of I'm working myself out of a job. What are the ways in which you're working yourself out of a job? And it's not to say that when we don't have uh, oppression at the level that we do now, we won't have a need for healers um, to hold us um, and be with us in losses and in conflicts. And in, these things are natural, part of a human experience, right? But it is to say that the way that social work has developed is absolutely and inextricably linked as an arm of like um, Mimi and Jay are saying, capitalism and white supremacist structures. Think about the, and I want to like make this real for people. Like think about you're a social worker and an alternative to incarceration program that is that is that is uh, enacting all of these mandates on young people. In what way is the young person or the person in your program actually engaged in the self determination that social work ethics call for? They're not. Right. Um, if you're working in a school and you're a part of the punitive, the dean system in a school, in what way is suspending and expelling and putting youth in all of these, I, I, you know, IEPs and all of these, you know, in what way is that actually supporting the self-determination and needs of the folks that we're working with? That's that that the social work code of ethics actually calls us to to, to do. It's not. And so I think that's one thing. And then I think the other thing that I'm grappling with in my work right now as we speak um, and in as an actor in the restorative justice field and movement is how the restorative justice field is in cahoots with systems, how in some for sort of justice programs, the way that we get access to the youth to divert them from the system is by having an expressed written legal contract with the state. So we have to engage the state to be able and 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 like in what ways do we actually have hope that the state is going to undo itself? It's it, it's unlikely. And what folks in the restorative justice field are finding, in fact, is that when restorative justice is offered, the state state's attorneys and folks are actually more inclined to use it for white youth for youth of privilege, 
um, as opposed to using it for youth that are the most impacted by all the oppressions that we're talking about. And that's what the research on on many restorative justice diversion programs is 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 showing us. And and what's beautiful about the restorative justice field in some in some aspects of the field is folks are transparent about that and the need for an even more focus on racial disproportionalities in the system. And so I think for me, those are some of the the paradoxes that come up. Um, and even just the last thing that I'll say, and I shared this in our prep conversation, when we think about the licensing structure of social work, the licensing structure exists really to support accountability, right? And if you're licensed and you behave badly, what happens? You lose your license, you get a slap on the wrist, you get a punishment. So even with embedded in the field, are those punitive models of being. And so I think there are just, you know, there's there's more that can be said, but I'll stop there. Thank you, Dr. Me. A couple thoughts come up as I listen to you. And one is there's this framework, and I, I'm still trying to place uh, where this exactly comes from. My citation game is 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 uh, needs improvement, but I'm working on it. But the framework is the idea that there there's work. I think it comes out of work against fascism in Italy, but I don't have the actual source. But the the framework is that there's work outside the state, there's work against the state, and there's work inside the state. And I think when we think about work outside the state, transformative justice, mutual aid, it's it's it's. <coughs> easier to find the alignment in abolitionist work. When you think of work against the state, still easy, but can be tricky if you're pushing for policy reforms and we can talk about liberatory reforms or non-reformist reforms. And then I think there's the work inside the state, which gets really messy and muddy. And I think, Wakumi, you were pointing to that a bit, and maybe we can come back to that in the next round of questions. The other thought I just want to share is that like, there are different ideas about the role of the state in abolitionist work. And I think there is a faction that's sort of uh, anarchist and there's a faction that's more socialist. And um, I personally am, am more in the socialist wing of that. And I think that's another conversation about sort of the social welfare state and abolition. Um, and we can talk about that if we have time. But Mimi, I'm going to kick it to you around tensions and paradoxes that you're coming across. Well, so many. I, I guess I, you know, named the, the great divide, which is like... That, that tension, I, I'm just, you know, building a little bit on um, what Wakumi was just highlighting was, um, you know, the history of social work. If if we look more narrowly at what we call formally social work, as opposed to um, the fact that many of us, you know, many of our communities just help each other um, and support each other, then we're looking at, um, you know, their professional schools. Schools of social work are professional schools. That's right. So they are, you know, school, law schools are professional schools. So there are certain ways in which it is so endemic to social work that we are creating a profession. We want to expand a profession. We want to keep our profession. Um, you know, for those, for my students who might be listening to this, I'm sorry, no, I understand that. And I, and I name this in my classes that, you know, I went and I got my master's degree as well, and I got my PhD, and I am, which made me qualified to um, to teach social work. So I, I'm not going to remove myself from that contradiction. Um, I think that uh, because it's 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 I, I remember when I was in a PhD program, and and when I heard about the development of social work theories um, and scholarship. So much of it was based upon are we a profession or not? And I was, was honestly quite shocked. Um, but this is very uh, contradictory if we're going to look at self-determination and abolition and anti-capitalism. 
now I, I, you know, I'm thinking about this more because in some ways, um, professionalization means you build skills, you get training. Um, you think about ethics and boundaries. I think that those are important things no matter what. But I also think that there's a way in which gets tied to this kind of licensing. Oh, we don't want you to actually do the work unless you have an MSW. It's, you know, a lot of gatekeeping. And I have a lot of trouble with that. Um, I, you know, I understand in this, you know, extremely competitive world, why, why people go there. But I think that's it's antithetical to my understanding of evolution and liberation. And if I can just say um, to add um, that uh, I'm feeling like led to just, I think, you know, to Jay's point and Mimi's point, like we're having a very polite conversation right now. And I might become emotional, but we have to understand the horrifying brutality of the state and the way in which the state is actively seeking constantly, every day, every second of the day to brutalize black, indigenous um, and brown bodies every day in schools, in neighborhoods, in homes. We've got nine year old girls in Rochester getting getting maced. We've got girls getting tased in their schools. We've got girls getting knocked unconscious in their schools. And so the extent to which any social worker is engaged in continuing to prop up the state, that social worker is complicit in the brutality of these of our people. And so folks need to really sit with and understand that, that this is like, you know, we're here, we're in this, you know, whatever well-produced hay market, you know, it's fabulous. But we need to understand the reality of the brutality um, that our people are facing and the fact that our people um, believe because of histories of condition and, and legacies of this conditioning every day that we deserve this. And so social workers, you know, we have a lot of undoing to do inside of our field. And the extent to which, again, anyone watching this is not actively engaged in resistance, you're actively complicit with what the state is engaged in in terms of that brutality. And I just, that just to me needs to be stated. Well, Kumi, thank you so much for that. It's really powerful and important for folks to hear and appreciate you investing that energy in all of us. Um, I'm going to move us on to our last sort of set of questions, um, and then we'll open it up for Q and A. Um, yeah, I guess the, the question is, what is what is what does this work look like for you right now, um, and what what is, what are we doing in terms of social work and abolition, and what are abolitionist things that we are engaged with? Um, so, uh, Mimi, I think I'm going to turn it to you first, if that's okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I'll take this opportunity to talk a little bit. Uh, more about some of the work that I'm engaged in and have been for a long time now. Um, and um, and uh, in addressing some of the critiques that Wakumi was raising about the opportunities and critiques of, of restorative justice, I've been working in the area of what we call transformative justice. So um, transformative justice being uh, the whole politic and a way of being that um, it, it came out of uh, people trying to um, address 
the fact that so many of us do suffer from and experience, um, yes, state violence, but violence that happens in our homes, sexual violence, child sexual abuse, uh, domestic violence, um, trafficking, these, these are rampant and they remain rampant. How are we going to address these um, kinds of harms that we just create and recreate without using the state? How do we bring in some of our um, abolitionist ideals? Um, and I, think, I don't think we talked enough about what we think of abolition actually means. Um, but uh, abolitionist ideas, liberatory ideas, ideas about caring about each other to actually not only support people who are experiencing violence, but to actually use that care and compassion and connection to, to deal with people who are our loved ones, who are also causing harm. And that can be any one of us. And so I think that the work of transformative justice to me has been a huge challenge, a huge opportunity. And, um, uh, you know, I really encourage uh, you to look at some of the work. You can look at transformharm.org to find all kinds of uh, information about this. Um, I think that's an area of practice um, that I think is very rich. Uh, and I think one of those tensions, <coughs> because it's also a practice that's been um, really having an ambivalent uh, relationship to professionalization. So how can people actually also have their social work jobs and do some of their political work outside of outside of your work hours. And I know that for some people, you're like, please don't ask me to do one more thing outside of my work hours. So, or how do we um, how do we really transform some of our organizations so we could do that work in a way that doesn't tie things then to another set of rules, another set of controls, another way that we have to deal with law enforcement, as as Bukumi was saying. Um, so I think that's a practice area that's really important. I'm also really heartened by um, the um, students coming through. I, I think things for me actually changed quite a bit after um, the uprisings of the summer. And students are asking, more students are asking very challenging questions. And I think um, that's very hopeful is I think that uh, stu many students now and whether they hear about abolition from us in the classroom or they just hear about it they, they get their education elsewhere. Uh, I think that there's hope about coming up with ways of transforming social work practice that I might not even imagine right now myself. Thank you, Mimi. And I, one, one of the things I heard is that there's the work that we're doing as quote unquote social workers, and then there's work that we're going to do outside of our jobs. Um, and some of that, some or all of that work can be our political work and that there are different places for that work to happen. Jay, can I turn to you? Yeah, no, thank you, Ken. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you, um, Wakumi. Uh, one of the things I think about, again, is this idea that do we really honor that we are a part of this system? Do we see white supremacy as not something that is limited to hue, but do we recognize that this is a disease? You know, this is something that has, like, spread to all of us. So for me, when I think about abolition and what I'm doing in regards to abolition, I see myself as the instrument of my slash our liberation. Yet, you know, I have to understand that I am corrupted 
you know, I've lived under systems of harm and domination. My lens is twisted. So I have to recognize that this dismantling of the system begins with me. Um, so for me, you know, and Wakumi kind of hinted on this a lot, and I feel like we often feel the work again is outside of ourselves. And so for me, my work towards abolition starts with myself. It starts with asking myself the critical questions. It starts with healing and understanding that, you know, trauma impacts my ability to show up for this work. Trauma impacts my ability to actually see and comprehend the history and the legacy of oppression that I have experienced. So when I'm able to, you know, do the work of being able to, um, to, to be critical, to dismantle and, and to begin to heal, I realize that I'm able to then facilitate and create spaces for other people to do that work. Mm-hmm. And that creates a ripple effect, right? Because this idea that somehow the change is going to start with the system, the change is us. The change is us, you know, and, and to your point, we are the instruments of our liberation. Uh, it's not going to come from any system. It's not going to come from any policy. It has to come from us. It has to come from within us. So if I get that, if we get that, then we have to show up and look ourselves in the mirror and ask, you know, what are the ideas of domination that I carry and play out in this world? Where am I still in need of healing that will allow me to be more vulnerable, that will allow me to be more honest, that will allow me to be more critical, that will allow me to create greater equity, not only in myself, but with others. So for me, Cam, when I think about this work, I really believe it's important that we look at ourselves. I think, you know, sometimes we want to look everywhere but at ourselves. And that is as much white supremacy as, you know, like the system itself. Thank you, Jay. Um, I I just want to flag for for folks who are listening that we're going to get into Q&A soon. Um, So feel free to start putting questions in the chat. Wakumi, I want to turn to you. Um, and think about the the work itself. And, and I have a particular question, which is um, Mimi was talking about how there's, you know, for many of us, there's political work outside of our day job. Some of us are lucky enough to be in organizations where our day job is political work. And you hold lots of hats, including running, building and running Soul Sisters Leadership Collective. And so I'm curious if you want to say anything about what it's meant for you to build a nonprofit rooted in sort of abolitionist values. Um, and, and, how maybe difficult that is or, or what possibilities lie in that. So turning to you, thanks. Wow, that's exactly what I was gonna talk about. Mm-hmm. You like, it, it's great. Um, okay, I am gonna put the timer on because I can talk long on this. Um, for the nonprofit executives and managers and clinical supervisors and people in leadership who are watching, I think I want to build on the question, the, the 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 on what Jay was just offering us in terms of thinking about how we, in our roles as nonprofit leaders, um, engage in power over domination, uh, power and control types of dynamics in the way that we run our nonprofits and the way that we're with the staff um, who are on our teams. Um, What does it look like to manage someone from the place of what their needs are rather than what the work plan is? How do we move away from capitalist ideas of sort of productivity over people and move toward a care-centered, like people-centered 
way of holding people in the work. Um, and to me, that's a really critical abolitionist ideal in the nonprofit space, because to Jay's earlier point, the state prisons and police and laws and the legal system are all just actualizations of power, control and domination. And so to the extent that we're modeling that in the way that we run our organizations, we are absolutely not resisting um, against state violence. And so um, one of the things that we do at Soul Sisters is we have a really uh, open paid time off strategy. Folks, we're really flexible around folks' work schedules. Um, Folks are, here's an example. We did a a rapid response to Central Florida after those black girls were brutalized by police in schools. And after that, did advocacy with funders to get healing stipends for all of the staff so they could heal. Care-centered, right? Like care-centered. And to me, that's really critical because the way the care uh, and the the self-determined care opportunities we provide the people in, in our organizations where we work have, and, and social workers know this language, parallel process, right? Have a direct impact on how the people we work with are with the, the communities in which we work. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's that's a thing that, that we've been thinking a lot about. And also just thinking about flattening structure. Um, you know, Soul Sisters has the word collective in our title, and I have to like be transparent in that we're not actually a fully functioning collective yet. Um, there are still hierarchical elements to our structure. Um, and the way that well, we engage collectivist practices of transparency, um, being care-centered, and supporting folks' self-determination around their work, um, and being deeply, deeply rooted and led by folks in the communities that are most directly impacted by the harms that our mission seeks to address. So um, that's what I would say about that. Makumi, thank you so much. Uh, A couple of things come up to mind as you're you're speaking. And one is Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about organized violence and organized abandonment, which has been a really helpful framework for me. And it's made me think about what's the antidote. And at least part of that, I think, is around organized care. And then, you know, we can think about organized care within our organizations, within our communities, potentially from the state. Maybe that's a question mark. I also want to give a shout out to the Himsa Collective in the Bay Area that I think is trying to build an organization in a way that really is aligned with the values. Um, so shout out to the Himsa Collective. We are going to move to questions and there's several that have come in. Um, I'm going to start with a question. There's a few questions about mandated reporting and navigating mandated reporting. And Wakumi, I'm going to turn to you. to. Yeah, I'm super happy to talk about mandated reporting. Um, Okay, so we have to disavow ourselves of this of the illusion that the child protective system protects children. That's like the first thing that we have to do. The child welfare system and the so-called child protection system is absolutely yet again an arm of the state. Perhaps well intended, maybe if we're thinking on a hopeful in a hopeful way. Um, However, there are, as every as folks on this call and on this, as folks who may be listening know, there are incredible racial disproportionalities in terms of who is subject to the mandates of the child protective system. Um, a, a few years ago, folks were talking about this as the new Jane Crow in terms of the way in which it 
black women and black mothers are being criminalized for being poor, for being subject to the shit end of the stick of capitalism um, and the child protective system, again, smacking people on the wrist um, as opposed to uh, wrapping self-determined, family-driven care around uh, the families that were in need. And so at Soul Sisters, um, obviously there are laws um, in place that we have to um, engage with. Um, but I, what I will say is that when we are faced with the circumstance in which we believe a child may be in danger in their home, the first thing that we're doing is we're, we're, we're reaching out to the guardians and having a transparent and real conversation. We're checking in with the child, we're safety planning, we're assessing, we're trying to get a sense of what may be the surrounding needs that are leading to the harm. A lot often in the ways that uh, transformative justice is asking us to think through, um, like Mimi said, um, how to address harm between people who are intimate and who, between people who love each other um, and who are in community and family together. Um, and, you know, when, if, if, if we need to engage the state, um, which sometimes because of the way that the structure is set up, this again is a paradox sometimes, but we rarely do. We do so from a, from a supportive um, stance. So we're calm, we're, we might be engaging the state, but we're doing that with transparency with the family that we're working with. And we're doing our best at, to also advocate with the family uh, on behalf of the family throughout the entire legal process. Um, and so really, again, taking an approach that's focused on care and self-determination uh, of the folks who are directly impacted. Well, Kumi, thank you for that. And there's, there's, th that was a great offering. And there's a fair amount of, of work out there about this. Um, Movement for Family Power is a great organization to check out. There's a, a website called Mandated Reporting something. I'll have to get back on that and we'll, we'll get that in the email to all of you. Um, we have a number of questions that have come in across uh, a gamut of different issues and areas. And I, I want to say one, we have 15 minutes left and, you know, this is, this is just one conversation of hopefully many, again, many that are already happening and many that will happen. Um, I, I'm going to ask this question about, there's a question about the CAHOOTS program in Oregon. And Mimi, I, know, I think you know something about this program and their relationship to police and policing. So there's a question about what we think about that. And I'm wondering if I can ask you to talk briefly about that. Yeah. Um, thanks, Cameron. Thanks for the question. I, I think that uh, this is um, an interesting, you know, it's an interesting moment in so many different ways. Um, and one of the things that has happened with uh, the great demand to defund the police has been um, the focus not only on right defund the police, but what are we going to put in? Uh, what are what are we constructing? So um, a question that many of us have been working on for many years, but certainly it's one that's like fresh in everybody's mind right now, as people are actually trying to look for finance, you know, funding actually is concretely shifting funding from the police um, to care for people, you know, housing and and healthcare and mental health care. Mental health care is one that appears to be something that has really come up um, as, uh, well, one, I, I, I believe partly because police actually don't want to deal with mental health. So there's a, there might be an, a, a greater openness. Two, that we actually have a model like CAHOOTS 
um, that has been around for 15 years now that has had enough um, kind of data collection, enough experiences, enough kind of a case study to actually say this is how we've been implementing this program. So I've been really interested in this. Um, it's a new moment for some people who have considered ourselves abolitionists. Why? Because many of us operated completely out of the system as much as one can operate completely out of any system. But um, uh, I know for tr working in transformative justice, I mean, I, I had like the Oakland police say, oh, we want to really do this. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And then we took government funding um, for that work. Um, but people that have been fighting to defund the police are suddenly in this kind of a little bit of a gray area that some people hadn't been in before where, um, and this is, I think where the question of if you, it, it calls upon some people to do some engagement with the police, with sheriffs, with city council, with, um, the department of public health and all of the different players that are involved in taking something that's a mental health response and moving it towards something like cahoots. Now, I'm studying this right now, and I'm like, you know, you'll you'll see more information on this. Still, I'm still kind of um, mulling over this and having a lot of conversations with different people about the different models that have come up. The thing that Cahoots has done successfully is that they have actually, I don't know, diverted is the right word, but many people do not engage at all with law enforcement because of the Cahoots model. They, there's, you know, many different details about how that happens and how that doesn't happen. But there are statistics. statistics. I mean, it is a largely white community in, in, in Eugene. But I, their statistics are worth looking at. They also train a lot of people. My understanding is the training is very good. And it's not just people that are social workers. It's training of people that are good at, at de-escalating conflict. People that are baristas, people that are bartenders, people that have worked in uh, homeless shows, people that don't mind going out at 3 a.m. And, um, and have had a really successful training program that has actually can, I, has, I think, has the potential to train people in our um, most impacted communities to actually have a job, to become more skilled at providing mental health services not only through something like cahoots but to their own communities so i think there's promising things but i think there's also like trying to um really understand and analyze the ways in which we are are, are we colluding with and how can that be used to just again legitimate the police and how can it be used to actually move towards liberation and those are some of the critical questions i think people who are engaged in abolitionism are thinking about Thank you, Mimi. I want to share two things and, and then turn to Wakumi for a question. Um, one, you know, there's the question about working inside the state and all of the different issues that that brings up. And I think it, it's uh, it's fraught. And so Dean Spade has offered a series of questions about discerning between non-reformist or liberatory reforms and reformist reforms. And I know our group in ASW has tried to think about what this means for social work. Jay and I also did some of that work. So hopefully we'll be sharing some of those questions in a way that's a little bit more um, formatted for social work or, or framed for social work. Um, but there's this broader question about what does it mean to work with the state as we try and reduce the harm of the carceral state. So Wakumi, I want to turn to you and, and, and have you talk a bit about your work in diversion. Sure. Um, so 
our work in diversion is uh, comes out of the model developed by Sujatha Baliga um, and the team over at Impact Justice, their restorative justice project. And they have been, we've been working in very close partnership with them over the past two years to be one of many sites across the country uh, piloting restorative justice diversion program that is a pre-charge post-arrest program where in the case of Soul Sisters, if a black girl or a girl of color, a non-binary person of color, um, mostly black though, our, we have a very specific focus on black girls and non-binary folks because of the racial disproportionality data and what it looks like in Dade County. Should they find themselves arrested and meet criteria, they have the opportunity to be referred to Soul Sisters by the state attorney's office, which is what which is the, what, what they call the local prosecutors in Dade County, um, to have the, ca- the case completely dealt with outside of the system. Um, so we would be engaged in having one-on-one sessions with the youth who allegedly did a harm, the person who was harmed, um, and with the goal of coming to some resolution, sometimes in a circle between all of the stakeholders and sometimes in other more creative ways. Um, We have to have an agreement with the state attorney's office to be able to receive those referrals. And um, it took us about a year and change to negotiate an agreement with the state attorney's office that created an iron curtain between us and the circle process and what happens in circle process and what happens in our community-based work and the state. And so there are, we have very little, um, we have some accountability to the state, but they're not, there's full shield of confidentiality um, in which what the young people share with us, we are, we, we absolutely are within our rights. It's, it's been agreed to that we're not responsible for reporting and we have just very small phrases of things that we report to the state, like case in progress, case resolved, plan in action, that kind of thing. Um, and so we're in the process of engaging in that work and Soul Sisters uh, value added um, to that work is one, creating uh, not just the circle process, but also what we call freedom coaching. So there is a, uh, a question that came through about like, how do we reframe social work? We don't talk about people as social workers, even if they have MSWs as soul sisters. We talk about people as advocates and freedom coaches. Um, And that's significant, that reframing and that language. Um, It really matters. And so we have that aspect, which is about supporting, counseling, you know, get supporting folks and getting access to resources. And then we also have a community organizing program that's an arm of that program. So youth coming through the diversion program have access to social justice education and uh, organizing training um, in, so, so that they can begin to unpack the conditions that led to them being in, in circle um, and engage so they choose in a more skilled way in social change work. Um, and so that's what we're up to with that. Thank you, Wakumi. Mimi, I know you wanted to add something to that, so I'm going to kick it to you. Yeah, um, I did. Thank you so much for sharing that, Wakumi. Um, that work is that can be, um, I think, there's a lot of uh, hope in restorative justice and transformative justice work. Um, there's a lot of cautions around restorative justice because 
but sometimes um, people will just say, restorative justice is great, where in this country, restorative justice, probably more often than <coughs> Uh, in uh, engage with law enforcement, um, and I mean, particularly with youth, um, there's there's special, you know, certain more legal things around young people. But I um, I've been working on a, a pilot project using one of those restorative circle models, which is something that I was unfamiliar with in my own transformative justice work. Um, and we're doing this in uh, the northern county of um, California. And we had agreed right from the on, on outset that we were not going to have a law enforcement based model and are, have been uh, doing it for about two years now. I'm have to say COVID, COVID does take a little bit of a hit. There's a hit, you know, on meeting in person when you have COVID. So there's some ways in which um, we were a little bit on hold uh, as many of us have been. And, uh, but I think that, I um, really look forward to sharing the learnings we have. I mean, I have to say that I'm using some of my uh, research evaluation kinds of skills and tools is so that we could actually see is this, is, how is this effective? How is it not? And how can we improve? What can we learn from this and how, how can we improve it, uh, on this? I think this is like a really critical area of work, but I I really think that we need to be very um, sharp about talking about, as Wukumi has, um, our relationship with the state um, in those kind of restorative programs. And not just assume that they're all abolitionist or they're all what we're going for, because they are not. Yeah. One, one thing I heard in, in both of what you were offering is like the, the importance of self-determination and not just as something we read in a book, but that that's like central to the decisions that are made every day, to the way that things are talked about. Um, and, and it's, I just want to name, it's difficult to, I don't know, we, we're all sort of evolving and learning and growing. And Wakumi, I super appreciate your charge that like, if we're not fighting this, we are complicit in this and causing harm. And that's real. We need to like hold that and sit with that and push ourselves. And, and we like, uh, it's a process to go from learning a concept and then embodying it and then bringing that into the way that you move in the world and your relationships and your work and then in your political sort of work more broadly. So anyways, I super appreciate what you guys shared. We're going to have one last question and I'm going to kick that to Jay and we're going to wrap up. And the question um, is, is it possible to have abolitionist social work education, even if we create a world where college is free, uh, hashtag free CUNY. So Jay, I'm going to kick that to you. <laughs> wow. Uh, so I, I think the first thing is maybe even I, I do believe in a power of education. I mean, and I think most of us probably do believe in a power of education. That's why we're in the spaces we are. And that's why we do the work that we do. Uh, yet I feel for me as a I actually, you know, I, when Wakumi talked about like the legitimization of degrees and titles as a community organizer who went to school for community organizing, one of the things that always I, I really took from it was um, you know pedagogy of the press and and really beginning to think about what what truly is education, and I feel like you know we we throw that word out a lot and you know without really thinking about what it is, and Paulo Freire speaks a lot about the politicization of education, and so much of why we are where we are at today is because of an education that has told us to devalue other people and education that has told us that it's okay as long as I have. 
um, you know, and, and preach other forms of domination and has preached other forms of separation. So I do believe that education, critical education, can be impactful towards transformation. Yet we are often not practicing critical education. You know, what does critical education look like? What does liberatory education look like? And I feel a big part of that is what many of you have spoken about tonight. It really begins with us kind of like looking at ourselves and where professionalization has stolen our humanity and has stolen our vulnerability and has stolen our ability to show up and see the humanity of each other. So till we can create spaces that allow us to actually show up and, and be in community and, and, and to actually grow and learn from each other, we're going to continue to reinforce some form of domination. So I definitely feel like education is critical, but we have to really talk about what does that end education look like. It's not the education that we have now. It's not me showing up and giving you an A or B because you can regurgitate the things that I've said to you. It's you being, it's you, me, and everybody else actually being in community and actualizing our values within that space. And it's something that I push my classes to think about all the time. This can't be a theory as much as it has to be a praxis. So if education is going to be liberatory, it, it means that we're actually learning and practicing freedom. And equity and justice and humanity and love. And maybe one of the things that I feel like is really critical to education that we don't talk about because it's not empirical is the idea of imagination. And many of us, you know, capitalism and, and varied systems of oppression has stolen our imagination and, and has really negated the possibility of a world in which everyone can self-actualize. So till we're able to really believe in that possibility, till we're able to really believe that, you know, we can create a world in which everyone has value, everyone has dignity, and everyone can self-actualize, we're only going to continue to reinforce domination and oppression. Jay, that was that was an incredible way to end. I think that the, the call is like, if we can't imagine a world where everyone has the, the, the possibility to self-actualize, then what are we doing? Yeah. Like that, I think, is a beautiful call to end on. It's a difficult call, but a beautiful call. Um, I want to thank Wakumi, Mimi, Jay, Haymarket, the NAASW. Uh, thank you, everyone who's stuck around this long, who's watching this later. We really, we really appreciate it. I want to say that these these... These are opportunities for, for a small group of people to think in public, um, and it's just scratching the surface, and um, we super appreciate you. Thanks you so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.